Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Good morning. Good morning. Let me get situated here. Good to see you this morning. Yeah, there's no, there is nowhere else that is, I would rather be than with my church family on Easter morning, right? This is the most important holiday, the most important day on our calendar. I mean, without this day, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are just playing games, right? This is it. This is the, the center. This is it. And I have to admit, Thinking about that, I was a little bit stressed preparing for this message. (laughs) A little more than usual. You know, I was reminded this last week through a pastor's Instagram account. God can speak through anything. Watch who you're following on Instagram. (laughs) Maybe he'll speak to you through there. But that pastor posted that same thing like, okay, pastors are stressed (laughs) this week. But remember that today is a good day for repeating what we said last Easter. And hopefully what we say every Sunday, which is that Jesus died and rose for you, for us, because he loves us and he forgives us. And that's it. And that's my sermon. So have a good Sunday. No. Mm? But that's it. That's the message and that's the faith that we confess. And today I'm thinking a little bit about the, the sentimentalists, you know, the people who, who are very moved by the story. It is a very moving story after all. Um, maybe you're that person, your heart swells today and, and you, you can shed tears thinking about Jesus at the cross. But maybe for some of you, the story doesn't have much effect beyond that. It moves you to tears today and then it doesn't change anything else for you. So I'm thinking about, about you today. I'm also thinking about the spiritual person the spiritual person who's comfortable, you know, believing that there's something greater out there, but doesn't really know much of the Bible and maybe thinks, you know, good for Jesus. He did that. All right. Good for these people. They believe that. They're living their truths. That's great. I'm thinking about that person today. I'm also thinking about the cynic, the one who came because your wife or your girlfriend said you needed to come today. And it's like, all right, I heard this before, a man somewhere far away, very far away from me, lived and died about 2,000 years ago. Big whoop. It wasn't for me. Like, that just doesn't make sense. I'm not clear how that relates to me. You know, someone died. People die. When's lunch? I'm thinking about you today. And I'm also thinking about those of you who are here, and you're in it. You love God, and you want more, right? So I've got a a pretty diverse audience of people (laughs) that I was thinking about as I was preparing this message. I just want to pray a a quick prayer. Matthew already blessed the service, but I just want to one more time. Lord, I thank you that you know everybody in this room. You know the people who are online watching and who will listen to this message after we're finished here today, and I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would knock us over today, 
Shake us up, Lord. Do something different. Move us out of our sentimentality, out of our cynicism. Help us find the way to you today, Lord. Amen. So as I continued to prepare, you know, besides these moments of stress, <laughs> I, I kind of felt my heart ripping in two as I'm preparing this message. And I took that to mean that we cannot rush to resurrection. Like, we need to stay at the cross today. And so that's where we're going. That's where I'm going to take you there. So I hope you'll join me this morning as we go there. And my goal then is at the end of this service that we will position ourselves at the foot of the cross, which I'm going to remind us, I'm going to show you why the cross is our our altar. altar. So just to recap kind of what's going on, our soon-to-be lead pastor Matthew preached two weeks ago in Lund about Jesus' panic attack. Basically, he has a panic attack uh, before he's arrested and before, before the whole thing starts in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we saw how Jesus agonizes in prayer. He goes to his father with his anxiety and his panic, and he's sweating blood, the weight of what is about to happen has settled in on Jesus. And he prays powerful prayer three times. If, Father, you can take this cup of suffering, this cup of your judgment, if you can take it away from me, please take it away. And then he says, and yet your will be done. He does that three times until his anxiety starts to shake off and he can rise up again with renewed strength to face the task. Then we can read in the gospel accounts, they're a little bit different if you read um, each gospel, but we can piece together how the story unfolds. Judas, of course, a former disciple, a disciple betrays Jesus. He leads an army of chief priests, sent by the chief priests to arrest him in the night in the garden. Jesus has a sham of a trial. It's a complete joke. First, with the Jewish high priest, they decide that they want to crucify him. In order to do that, they've got to send him to the Romans. So they send him to Pilate. Pilate, a man with absolutely no spine, a spineless man, he doesn't fully understand the case against Jesus. He's like, I think this guy's innocent. Like, I can't really find anything. But he capitulates to the religious leaders of the day and agrees to crucify him on the basis that Jesus has committed blasphemy. That is, that Jesus has said he is God. Pastor Matthew painted a picture last service then of the violence of the crucifixion. This is often the part that gets us all emotional. And I'm not saying it's bad to be emotional. I'm just saying don't leave it there. But, it, of course, crucifixion, Matthew reminded us, is meant to be a public shame. It was a violent show to deter other criminals of the state. It was for criminals of the state who would lead insurrections, murderous people. And that's where Christ was sent. He was beaten, he was mocked with a crown of thorns. You say you're the king, so let's treat you like a king, they said mockingly. Put a crown of thorns on him and a kingly robe. He carried his own cross up the hill to be nailed to it, where he suffocated from his own weight. And it's right here. Okay, here we are. I want to zoom in. This is like we're a director in a movie. We're zooming in on one detail at the moment of his death. So we can read in John 
chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus is on the cross. And it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We read then in Matthew 27, verse 51, that at that moment... At that moment of that last drink and his giving up his spirit, the curtain or veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's this ripping of the curtain that I want to explore a little bit more today. I really, really, really believe that God has something for us here. What is this curtain in the temple? Why do we even have this detail? And how in the world does fabric from Israelite antiquity relate to us today? Right? What, like, what does that have to do with me right now? A lot. A lot, I would argue. So hang with me here, okay? This is like cut scene. We're like going to a flashback now. We've been at the cross with Jesus. He said, it is finished. He's died. The curtain rips in two. So cut to the temple. So the temple is uh, it's perhaps a strange Old Testament image for some of us. We might not always pay attention to it, um, but the temple is crucial for understanding this entire story. You know, without the Old Testament, um, zooming in on the cross is like watching the third movie in a trilogy and not having seen the first two. Like, you can get it. It's an amazing moment. You can understand that this is the climax. There's some resolution coming here. This is a big deal, but you're just missing so much of the bigger picture, a deeper understanding of the characters and why this is all unfolding exactly the way it is. So I pray that we're going to get a fuller understanding and and then a greater experience of the cross today. And to do that, we're going to go back to the temple. So the temple just to understand what it kind of represented. It was the meeting place of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth come together where God's presence could be. It was kind of like the Garden of Eden in that way. It was where God's personal presence could dwell among his people. So in the garden, humans enjoyed the full-on presence of God all the time. And they would, of course, continue to do so had sin, which is fundamentally a separation. You know, Adam and Eve, they mistrusted God and they believed a lie. And so sin enters the scene. That created a wedge between them and God. They couldn't enjoy God's close personal presence in the same way after that. So what does God do? Go out to get revenge? Yeah, but not against the humans, against the sin. Right? So God sets out to get the humans back and to remove this wedge in our relationship. And so part of this plan was the temple. For a time in history, God lived with his people in a temple. It's it's pretty crazy stuff. Okay, like I understand talking about the temple and thinking about what that was like and the rituals. It's just kind of weird to us because it's, it's... It's so foreign, but hang with me here, okay? Um, Interestingly about the temple, 
You know, his, God's presence was so obvious at times, so no one who was around the temple was wrestling with the question of, is there a God or not? You know, that big question that is on a lot of people's minds today. They were just like, oh, yep, there he is. He's the smoke cloud over there in the temple. That's God, right? Um, I have an image here, if we can get that on the screen. I hope my images are working. Uh-oh, no images are working. Okay. So the Temple Mount, I want you to kind of get this picture, uh, the temple in, in Jesus' time, a huge area, okay, and it's got lots of courts. So you're walking in, and there's like a general area where, you know, most people can go, and then there are layers to the Temple Mount, and different people are allowed to go in and not go into the different layers of the temple, Right. Um, and there were a lot of rules and regulations about who could go and where and what they had to do in order to be able to move in and out of different areas of the temple. You can read about all this, if you're so inclined, in 1 Kings 6 to 8. It's those sections that kind of put us to sleep sometimes. We're like, oh, 50 cubits of wood and this and that, and it had to be just right. It's, it's basically like reading a text version of an architectural blueprint like super boring, actually, so that's fair. Um, but I actually want to point out that these rituals and these, this precision isn't just for the sake of it. In fact, it was a matter of life and death and of God's presence being able to remain, to stay there in the temple with his people. So toward the center of the temple, there's a place called the, the holy place or, or the center of the temple mount, was the temple. You had the holy place, and then you had the holy of holies, super duper holy, right? Um, and, and it's called that because it's the main hotspot of God's presence. And here's the thing about it. Only one person called the high priest, he was the mediator between the people and God. He's the go-between. He's the guy who reconciles the relationship between the people and God. Only he could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it one day a year. And he could only do it on that one day a year after very carefully atoning for his sins and the sins of the community. You know, there's actually a legend that the Israelites would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest before he went in there, just in case he missed a step and would drop dead in God's presence. That way they could pull him out, right? <clears throat> so here's what he had to do. On, the, on, on that day, the day of the atonement, the high priest would bathe himself in water. There was a specific basin for that. It wasn't just any water, of course. Put on sacred garments. And first he would sacrifice a bull. And this bull would atone for his sins and the sins of his family. That way he was covered and could therefore cover the sins of others. So then he would have two goats with him, and he would cast lots. You read that phrase a lot in the Bible, they would cast lots. It's just an old way of making a decision. That's a good way to make a decision in these days. So he would cast lots, and the first goat, lucky goat, would be sacrificed, right? His throat would be slit. And the high priest then would carry the blood of this goat into the most holy place, 
And there was a gigantic curtain there that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So to get in there, he's got to be carrying the blood of this innocent lamb. And there he would sprinkle the blood um, on the ark. Like in the days of Solomon's temples, there was something called the Ark of the Covenant. Of the Covenant. Not an Indiana Jones thing first. Indiana Jones got the Ark of the Covenant from the Bible, not the other way around, just to be clear. There's this thing called the Ark, and inside it are the laws of Moses. And there's a cover on it, and it's gold, and it's called mercy seat. And so the high priest would sprinkle the blood of this innocent lamb on mercy seat. And now this innocent blood is in between the presence of God, which would come down on this seat, on the cover of the ark, and the laws that have been broken by the people. So that's the ritual. Now, let's not forget about goat number two, lest you think he got off easy. No, the priest then would put his hands on the head of that goat, confess the sins of the people over it, and send it out into the wilderness. And it was a great symbol of God removing all the sins from the community. So the sins of the Israelites are now covered and forgiven. And God's meeting place is purified until the Day of Atonement the next year. Bummer, they got to do it again in a year, right? This is a temporary solution, foreshadow of what is to come. Two principles here are super important and very relevant to this day, even though we do not have a a temple set up and we do not sacrifice goats. One, it's a reminder that sin is so serious. Sin, sin rots the individual and it rots the community. And you know, it's not so much a list of behaviors as it's the idea that I can rule my own life. Like, that's the idea that's underneath any, any sinful behavior. It's like, I can choose what's okay for me and what's not okay for me. And the problem is, it rots you from the inside, and it has devastating effects on other people, right? And Genesis 3 to 11 paints a picture of the downward spiral of humanity into death and destruction when human after human decide just that, to rule on their own without God. And the consequences, they're devastating. The the consequences are ultimately death. That's what sin results in. And you know what? God is angry at sin for corrupting his good world. Look, imagine you're the mother of a precious newborn baby. And then six weeks later, you find out that that baby has cancer. What do you think that mother feels? She loves that baby, and she hates that cancer because that cancer is going to kill her child and separate it from her forever. That's how God feels about sin. That's how God feels about it. He hates it because it's killing his dearest children. And so God's like, I got to preserve my good world And so I got to do something. I got to deal with sin. And that's what this Day of Atonement temple ritual reminds us of. It also reminds us that God's presence is holy. And I think his holiness is sometimes misunderstood or just 
just not understood, and for good reason. I mean, language fails us completely. We cannot adequately describe God's holiness. It's like the sum of his complete goodness and his power all together. It's kind of like the sun. I hear this metaphor a lot. It's like the sun. It's intense, burning power, which is the source of life. It's completely good, but it's also dangerous, right? Even us here, this far from the sun, we have to wear sunglasses, otherwise we can't look at it. We put on sunscreen, otherwise we get burned. If you get too close to the sun, you will get burned. And it's not because the sun chooses to burn you if you get too close. It's just because that's what the sun is. And what we are is not the sun. It's so, we're so totally different and opposed, and we can't be close. That's, that's what God's holiness is like. It's not a choice. He doesn't choose to be holy. He just is holy. And he cannot do anything that contradicts that nature. It's not like he meets a standard of holiness. It's that he is the standard. And this is, in fact, the most important thing about God that defines everything else. Is God love? Absolutely. But it's holy love. It is set apart. It is something totally different and altogether perfect, good, and powerful. So here we are in the temple. Let's pretend we're standing here in the temple courts. And I want to then cut in this movie. Now cut to a scene in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be here for a few minutes, so you can turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah has a vision of the glory of God's holiness that I think illustrates the appropriate human response when faced with a holy God. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. They can't be confronted with, with God's holiness, right? With two, they covered their feet out of reverence, and with the other two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. God's presence. The seraphim, now, if you followed there, they're kind of strange creatures. They got six wings, right? We're like, what is this? They are angelic beings who burn. They come from the root Hebrew word that means to burn. They burn with holy love for God. They have to cover their faces. Their whole job, heaven is filled with heavenly hosts whose whole job is to sing holy, holy, holy. Look at verse 5, what happens to Isaiah. He says, after seeing this vision, Woe to me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I am ruined. What is happening here? Isaiah has a vision of God's holiness, and at the same time, he suddenly realizes the depth 
of his sin. He realizes that there is a great divide between me and God. God is like the sun, and I am a puny person who is going to get burned. He realizes that anything he has to offer God is like dirty laundry. It's a painful cry. Woe to me. This is the feeling of every man or woman who has discovered himself or herself under her own disguises and is confronted with this inward sight of the holy purity that is God. His heart is torn up. He's ripped up. And, you know, it's not until we see ourselves in the light of God's perfect holiness when our disguises and our masks and our manicuring and our sidestepping, you know, we do a lot of work just trying to keep up appearances. Like, you know, okay, I didn't post that. Oh, don't say that. Or oh, if I, I don't want anyone to know that about me, so I'm going to say it this way instead and worse. I mean, it's just all so ridiculous in the bright light of God's holiness. Just dirty laundry. It's why if you look in the Bible at people who come close to God's glorious holiness, their knees usually go weak. Abraham, Joshua, David, Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul, John, they all fall on their face. They are so overwhelmed. We read in in some places that people, when confronted with the glorious holiness of God, they feel like they're going to die. It's no wonder that even the doorposts and the the thresholds shook in the temple. And you know, God is the same today, right? Perhaps you don't know him, and so all this sounds a little extreme. Ooh, getting a little hotter in the collar there, God. But I guess that even if you don't know him, in somewhere there's a longing in your heart for perfect greatness. Like, that's what we're striving for. And if you were confronted with it, it would terrify you. You know, sometimes we might think of God as kind of picky and spiteful. He's keeping score and watching our every move. Oh, no, no, check, no, check. Oh, good. Fail, pass, fail, pass, fail. <clears throat> He's like a nagging wife in that way. Like, oh, okay, critiquing everything. No, 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 be holier. No, don't. No. But that's not it. <laughs> that's not it at all. But we think he chooses to be holy. If we've got that picture, it's because we think he's choosing to be holy. He just is holy, right? He doesn't want to put you in your place. He just is holy, and you just recognize your place when you're confronted with him. Or perhaps more often in our context, if we don't see God as like a spiteful, uh, critiquing kind of power up there, we, we make God nice and we tame him. Right? We make him a self-help guru or a genie who grants wishes. Or, you know, we think of Jesus as just a really, really good human. No, he, he isn't just the pinnacle of our best. Right? He's altogether different, never-ending. The creator of time, the source of goodness and life. And we cannot be in his presence unshielded. There is a gulf between us and God. That's the bad news. (laughs) Like, that's bad news. And here's the good news. God is not satisfied with this divide. Like, this is not okay for God. He's not interested in remaining far away, forever separated from us. He doesn't want to watch the cancer kill his baby. 
right? He can't change his holy nature, but he can change us. So check Isaiah 6, 6. This, this is amazing what happens next after Isaiah has said, I am ruined. Then one of those seraphim flew to him with a live hot coal from the altar. He's got it with tongs, this weird flying creature has a hot coal with tongs, and he touches the coal to Isaiah's mouth. And he says, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah has just been made holy. This is, of course, it's a vision of Jesus that Isaiah is getting here, who removes our guilt and makes us holy in the sight of God the Father. Remember, this is what God has been after this whole time. God has always wanted to be close to his people. That was the original plan. That's how he made it. That's the end goal of this whole thing. That's the, that's the point of his rescue plan. The temple that he gave the Israelites was a way out, a way to be with him. It was a mercy at the time. And it did require these steps to purify and atone so the priest could go further into his presence. Isaiah's vision speaks of a time when we don't have to do steps one through ten in order to enter in. Just like the coal comes out from the, uh, the altar to meet Isaiah, so God actually came down to where we are. He wants you to be close. So he came down. And he got on the altar himself. And so now we're back. We're back at the cross. The cross, our altar. It's, it's where we have to kneel before we can come into his presence. And friends, you know what? You were made to live in the presence of God. That's what you were made for. You know, without it, this is a silly picture, but without it, we're like an unplugged refrigerator. <laughs> it's like an ugly cabinet you can store something in, right? Uh, but it's got to be plugged into the source for it to actually function the way it was made to function. That's what it's like when you finally start living life in the presence of God who you were made to live with. You start functioning the way you are meant to function. You know, any place else you're trying to suck life out of might be thrilling for a while, but it will always leave you disappointed and unsatisfied. The lie we believe sometimes is that God is boring and God's holiness is boring. But I love this line that C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. And in Jesus' death on the cross, his glory shines brightest, brighter than any Old Testament fire, more awe-inspiring than any temple cloud. His uncovered holiness and his justice, he was naked on that, you know, uncovered physically. The physical is telling us something spiritual too. His uncovered holiness and his justice are on terrifying full display on the cross. But so is his love and mercy. It's there that those two 
aspects of God, his great unreachable holiness and his love that reaches right down come together in the same picture. They don't cancel each other out. They go together. God came down to be our holy priest, our mediator, who could mend our broken relationship. He could walk into the holy of holies, no problem, because he was God and he was perfect. No washing or bull sacrificing was necessary for him. And on the way, he could pick up all of our sins, our marks, our brokenness, our shame, our dark secrets, indeed the darkness of the whole world. He took them and then he drank that cup. He asked not to drink the cup of God's judgment and justice on the cancer that infects his good, good world. What else could both a holy and a loving God do? He can't be close to anything or anyone with sin in it. His holy nature requires him to hate sin because it separates him from what he loves the most. Only he could close the divide. Only God the Son could be the final sacrifice to die and make a way, make a way for us permanently to be in his presence. It is finished, he said. The curtain in the temple was torn. In other words, the way is open from God's side. The way is open should we come to the altar. And instead of that altar where we got to sacrifice a bull and a goat, we just come to the cross. He is still holy. We still tremble before him, but our fear doesn't have to push us away. I'll remind you of Adam in the garden after he has eaten the fruit. He is consumed with guilt and shame at that point. And what does he do? He wants to hide. He can't fully, of course, but he wants to hide from God's presence. We don't have to come. We don't have to tremble with that kind of fear today. Don't hide, friends. Our fear now is meant to draw us closer. It's like a fearful awe of God's holy, perfect goodness and the depths that he went to to destroy sin and death because he wants us close. So we tremble, but guess what? We can also read that we can come boldly into the throne room and live again in his presence where we were meant to live our entire lives. There doesn't have to be a barrier anymore between you and our holy God. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. His body is now the way in. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Some of us today, I feel, are not feeling so confident before God. You feel like a lousy Christian. I got to serve more. Maybe I would feel better. I could, like, I feel kind of guilty all the time. I don't know. But maybe if I serve more, if I give more, I sign up for something. Maybe you're actually doing too much. 
and it's distracting you from the most important thing. Maybe you've elevated doing stuff for God in front of being with God in his presence. And God's just here. He's just waiting to ravish you with the fullness of his holy love if you'd slow down and come humbly. I think of a home that looks beautiful, but something feels off. Like something's off and you're like, oh, what is it? You spend a lot of time, maybe you're painting, you're putting fresh curtains, you got flowers on the table. You know, it looks, it looks beautiful, but it never quite does it. Like it doesn't get rid of that feeling. You're like, mm, this just isn't right. And it's because your foundation is sinking or your basement is rat infested. <laughs> So it's like it doesn't matter if there are fresh flowers on the table or a fresh coat of paint in the room. Like for some of us, that's the spiritual metaphor that's most relevant today. You're like, okay, God, I'm going to work on this. I'm painting over here. And he's like, I can help you with these rats in the basement. <laughs> like that place you don't want to go. Like there's a place in here that you just don't want to go with God. And God's like, that's where I want to go. That's the thing that's in the way, right? There's one theologian who calls that kind of stuff the veil in our hearts. God got rid of the curtain in the temple, but now we got one in here still. And we're like, nah, I don't want to go there, God. But it's in the way. You cannot experience the fullness of his presence unless you go there with him. And the thing is, even if you've come to the cross before, we got to do it again and again and again. Like this, we got Easter every year, you know, we got every day, we got to do it again. Maybe you're carrying the weight of sin. Maybe you feel eaten up inside. Maybe you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Do you know that feeling when you're just like, Ugh, I got this thing, and it's eating me up. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, he says. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover it up anymore. I said, here are the rats. <laughs> Look, my foundation is sinking. This is the thing I'm most ashamed of and embarrassed about. I acknowledged it to you. What does God do? Burn you on the spot? No. He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's it. I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's as simple as that. But that's like the hardest step for so many people. We're just going around saving face, manicuring, and God's like, oh, you're missing it. I'm just over here. Some of you aren't experiencing God like you want to, and it's because he's over here waiting for you to acknowledge the rats. So I want to invite us today to come to the cross, come to the foot of the cross, come to our altar it's the only way into his presence. He wants to shower you with his holy love. I feel like someone is like hanging out in the temple courts, 
You're doing the stuff. You're implementing some principles. You're following along. You're hanging out with this crew of people. And God's like, come on in to the holy of holies. Quit hanging out just in the temple courts, you know, kicking rocks. Come on in. So today, maybe, maybe the band wants to come up. <laughs> We're going to take communion. It's fitting, right? As we remember the cross and what that really signifies, the divide between God's holiness and our sin how much he loves us, how much he's so angry at sin for keeping us far away. His body, that in Hebrews it says, was the curtain. We remember that his body was ripped for us, his, his blood shed for us. If you're the sentimentalist, the spiritualist, or the cynic, or none of the above, but you feel your heart pounding, or like you're going to explode, that's God. That's God saying, I'm here. I've already done it. I've already torn the curtain in the temple. Now it's, it's you. Now come on. Come on up to the cross. Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17 says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I want you to come up and take the sacraments, and then do what you feel led to do. Maybe you want to take it up at the front. Maybe you want to go back and make an altar at your seat. And I want you to pray that. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken heart. And then you receive the gift that is his body and blood shed to cover that divide. Let's pray. Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for an opportunity to remember what your body and your blood broken and shed for us accomplished to remember that you are so holy. You are like the sun, good and powerful and the source of life. And I am just me. We are just people. We're just here and we've got baggage and our hearts are broken and we feel ashamed about things that we've done or haven't done. 
We're carrying around burdens we've inherited from other people. And there's nothing, there's no fixing, there's no running around, there's no perfecting we can do that lives up to your holiness. It's just dirty laundry. God, I pray that you would give people in this room a fresh revelation of your holiness this morning. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, Father. Open our eyes. What are we doing? Is this real or not? Are we playing games or not? Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us as we take some time at the altar of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we can accept your forgiveness. All we got to do is accept it, Lord. Thank you, Father. Come now. Come to the front. Receive the bread and the cup. Mm-mm.